0: This is how it feels. We are electric eels going round like a wonder wheel.
1: Round, round, round. Members of the TalkScript team were on site at JSConf US 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them in their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a six-part series to help share the essence of JSConf US 2019. This episode contains interviews with Laura Shank, Adam Gesey, and Luke Harrington around the theme of declarative code. We're back with another episode of Talkscript. Uh, I'm Neil Roberts.
2: I'm Sam Menza, and I'm Laura Shank. I just gave my CSS Algorithms talk yeah. at JSConf US.
1: That was a lot. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect going into a CSS Algorithms talk.
3: Yeah, maybe. I didn't know.
1: I didn't know the the approach you were going to take for it. So. That was kind of fun. Uh, Do you want to give like a brief overview of what you mean by CSS algorithm?
2: Sure. So, wow. Brief overview. No. Okay. So CSS. I feel like Mm -hmm. like a
1: slide that did a good job.
2: Yeah. Well, a CSS algorithm is a well-defined declaration or set of declarations that produces a specific styling output. Mm -hmm. That's my technical definition of a CSS algorithm. But the kind of overarching concept is kind of understanding CSS as a programming language and as a domain specific declarative language, what does an algorithm look like in that type of language? And so a CSS algorithm is all about like writing CSS that's very intentional and uses kind of browser algorithms in a, a smart way and you're kinda of really embracing the language.
1: Yeah. I like that you're saying like you take a set of classes and nodes as an input
2: mm-hmm. and you end
1: up with visual presentation as an output.
2: Yeah, so in the talk there's kind of this input output Slide where the input is a stack of unstyled boxes because everything's a box, like in unstyled nodes, divs, whatever you want to say, and then the output is some kind of style. So, whatever declarations we use in the middle there, that's essentially an algorithm.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll, the thing that it made me think of is like pure functions mm-hmm. in JavaScript, where I feel like no one would, if you wrote like a program where you used someone else's pure functions, I don't think anyone would say like you're not programming. But with CSS, a lot of people are like, no, it's not programming, but it right. seems like it does the same thing. So it's kind of weird to take that stance. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that's the like declarative paradigm. Is you're yeah. saying what, yeah. not how. Yeah. And so CSS is essentially like a bunch of function calls. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you, I mean, it's a little more of an understanding required than that. But if you look at kind of the property value API, it's
3: similar. Mm-hmm. Right, right you're getting a point where it tends to be ignored by like a lot of people because they they think that it's not a real programming language, that it's just used to draw pretty boxes on a page. They don't think about it as a, a true like uh, different part of the engineering stack. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. There's, I mean, I, and I've heard it like in a couple of talks here, and just all like it's definitely a pervasive thought where it's like CSS and HTML sometimes, which is yeah. major impacts for accessibility, are seen as like the finishing layer. Mm-hmm. It's like do the the quote unquote like real stuff, then like, sprinkle in whatever CSS you need, but that has major impacts for, like, the health of your code base Mm -hmm. and your product.
3: Yeah, or as you say, uh, TDD, the uh, turd-driven development.
2: Turd-driven development, (laughs) yes. (laughs) That was a fun aha moment when I, like, had the idea for that slide (laughs) and that that flow. I like
1: how you kind of have the two different directions for the turd-driven development, which is, like, the piling on the circle where it's just, like, Someone says, like, you need to make a style change, and then you just add some more CSS on, and, so, and then, like, it, you know, you need to fix the browser bug, and then you add more CSS, and you add more CSS, and add more CSS, and then it's unmaintainable. Un-
3: mm-hmm.
1: But then you also had the direction where it's, like, you just start with something that isn't necessarily clean, and then gradually clean it up by how it's laid out, how it's named, how it's tested, all that stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, refactoring, mm-hmm. which is such a huge topic in software engineering, mm-hmm. but unless you're really explicitly working on a design system and the goal is to refactor all of the CSS, it's very rare that you would go into a CSS code base, base um, like as you're building out a different feature and be like, Oh, I should refactor this speaking from how I've approached CSS in the past and what are your
3: Yeah, for sure. From others. Sure. Yeah, I really liked how you got like a CSS library together where you had like the A glue and, like, others, uh, classes that you could kind of reuse around the database. I thought that was really clever and kind of speaks to your whole theme of CSS being, like, a part of engineering.
2: Yeah, I mean, you end up having these kind of, like, CSS components or patterns. I mean, patterns, like, a big, in our system, like, everything is a pattern. It's, like, a very specific term for different parts of the, the program. So. Mm-hmm.
3: I
1: think that yeah. gets to where, like, it's such a disservice for people to say that CSS isn't a programming language because then I feel like people don't, don't take like a rigorous computer science approach to writing CSS, which is I mean really what you're advocating for, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a very good point. I was talking to somebody earlier who was like, what do I do to learn more CSS? And I was like, well, you have to really understand how rendering works mm-hmm. in the browser, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is, and is something like I probably didn't understand for the, my first five years of writing HTML and CSS mm-hmm. and being a developer, and when I learned more computer science, like, for this algorithms interview, Mm -hmm. then when I read about how the browser worked, I was like, oh, I get that. And so many things kind Mm -hmm. of fell into place for, like, that made my CSS so much more exciting and, and a lot better because... I think to, to be good at CSS, you kind of have to have, like, a little rendering engine happening in your brain as yep. you're writing your code.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, <laughs> I mean, mean, you do.
2: You like, you're like, oh, well, let me picture, like, what flex is doing, know, et cetera. Right.
1: I think a lot of people think they have the render system in their head, and then that just means that they don't, usually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like such a... It does so many different things, you know, even so many different times, right? Like, you have a few different loops where you need to not just do layout and paint and mm-hmm. all these different things.
2: Right. Yeah, so I would say, too, it's the, I guess the whole thing, not just, like, rendering pipelines specifically, but, like, how CSS is, like, the cascade, of course. Like, you have to have kind of a, a mental mm-hmm. cascade happening in mm-hmm. specificity and specificity. And you can really intentionally, ah, yeah. like, those are, <laughs> those are such beautiful tools. So in the kind of file structure for IT CSS, which is inverted triangle CSS, and the CSS architecture that I'm using in this design system is, like, based off of that but it's based on cascade and specificity. And so algorithms in the directory structure are above utilities. So the utilities are these kind of dumb, one declaration, property value classes, like atomic CSS, functional CSS, like font size 18, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then algorithms are above that because utilities should override algorithms usually, like you should be able to do that, but algorithms sometimes have higher specificity. So they will, by default, override the utilities when they need to. And so -hmm. it's like this, getting too in the weeds about it. it's like this really nice thing that just like works so well mm-hmm. and those are part those are like the fundamentals of the language see so yes, like of the domain
3: mm-hmm. you keep saying a uh, design system um would you mm-hmm. mean would you mind uh, elaborating more on
2: that oh yeah so oh, <laughs> design system is such a weird word for what it is for what a design system is so mm-hmm. design system can be a lot of things in general, like when I when I say design system for my purposes, I work at a publisher, a big publisher, PMC, and we are building a design system, which for us is more of like a suite of front-end tools and coding practices and like a starter kit, kind of starter framework, and eventually we'll be more involved with the designer. So having design that is synced up with what our software tools are, so, that's like a system. And a lot of times, design systems are kind of broken down into these very small pieces called design tokens, so like certain color schemes. So, we have like very specific names for our colors there's like brand primary, brand secondary, brand secondary light. And everything's kind of locked into that system. Mm-hmm. And it's rooted in the UI, like elements of UI design. And a design system can reach very far, like from React components or like these kind of twig components that we have, or it can be consumed into like an iOS app. It can be applied to slide decks. So anything that's this like visual system that also has kind of a software platform. I also think of design design system as like an API for your user interface. Mm-hmm. In a lot oh, of I like ways. that. So. So it's like I'm on the design systems team. I'm building the API that other applications are going to consume and other developers are going to
3: use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, sounds, I, yeah. I love that way of thinking about it. Um, it's like super. Like it is a way that people can think about it in more of like a technical way, but that people normally don't think about with CSS um, mm-hmm. as we as we keep getting it. Yeah, one of the like questions that actually I, I thought about was because we, you know you're saying that CSS is a programming language. Would that then make it more intimidating for people who are coming from these alternative? backgrounds being like oh well, CSS you know it's programming language I'm not you know I'm not about that have you had any feelings um
2: I've definitely thought about that okay. <laughs> and like that is a concern but I think the fact that like anybody can learn to write so, so my vision in calling it a programming language is that and this is a very grand vision <laughs> would kind of make programming at large more accessible because if, if we can kind of shift the thinking where it's like oh wow yeah you just wrote you just wrote a program
3: mm-hmm.
2: like yes that's programming mm-hmm. go learn more yeah. and so programming becomes instead of something that like turns people away from learning it it's like oh yeah like are, cool i want to learn more about programming i can do this because mm-hmm, that that is like the and that's how, that's how I felt for sure starting out. It's like, oh, I don't want to... I don't program. Like, I don't want to be a programmer.
3: I'm not computer um, scientist. Yeah, it's like
2: not not for me. So people who come from, like, creative backgrounds and, like, non-traditional backgrounds are like are the math and math and science haters in high school right. wouldn't necessarily be interested in programming as we currently see it but if if people are like oh yes css is programming mm-hmm. that's like kind of caters to people who are, have a lot of different interests yeah for sure so that's the, the grand vision yeah i like that vision my master plan <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i really like even with css i like the idea of thinking like you know dot color red you know and then Where you make something red, I like the idea of thinking that as like a function that gets applied to a node, and that's where like even if you do that as you are learning CSS, you start to learn it as operations being done rather than like just thinking I am making something red. Yeah, like it's just a it's a way to switch your brain. I think that even makes it so that when you write CSS, it's better.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, could so um, something that came up at a conference earlier this summer is like the idea of so utility classes are essential in these like dot red mm-hmm. as color red is essentially inline styling and that's kind of assuming it's all it's like a little bit of an anti-pattern compared yeah. to what css was initially for mm. which was that you didn't have to write the same inline styles on every single element yeah. and it would carry across pages so it's kind of like a a bizarre <laughs> contradiction but in a lot of code bases, it's much easier to manage reusable chunks of HTML with those consistent class strings than it is to manage a style sheet. And that's, I think, in large part because of naming. Mm-hmm. So when someone names an element a card, maybe the, the next developer that looks at that doesn't consider that a card, or there's, they build out a nice card component and then the design doesn't match it, the modification to the design doesn't fit correctly with what exists. So then you get this, like, you know, the turret driven development, mm-hmm. like this kind of snowballing debt where you're overriding things and it never has like a max.
3: Right. Yeah. I think naming is actually like, it's, it's hard because it is so opinionated mm-hmm. and it's it really, it's about, you know, how that person thinks about the code. So it is hard to, you have to kind of think outside of yourself a bit when you're naming something and being like, okay, well, how is everyone else going to think about this?
2: Yeah. And if you have developers who are English isn't their first language, mm-hmm. then that can be pretty interesting. Do right. and and extra challenge.
1: Yeah, even just ordering words, make sure that's understandable. Oh yeah, oh yeah.
2: I mean that's a that's a big thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And how do you make sure? Like you talked a little bit about making sure that someone doesn't reinvent the wheel. Like what does that look like in terms of how someone finds existing components that might have already been done?
2: And that's a good question. <laughs> and like a little TBD with our system because documentation's like going to be the next phase. Mm-hmm. Like we still have some things to build out, but find and folder man. That's like very obviously extremely useful but like fine. if you name things well mm. and have like a very predictable file structure mm. it's pretty easy to navigate to see what's there so like are you like background utilities for example are in a file called u-background and that's what they're all named exactly the same thing so it's kind of like all the naming choices are already decided and because we have a lot of projects that are relatively similar not the same but you can go to this other project and see how it was done Mm -hmm. so the idea is kind of laying small breadcrumbs to help findability readability things like that eventually like there will be some smart documentation or i could see like a cool autocomplete editor plugin Mm -hmm. something like that cool
1: yeah it's fun to see all the stuff working together
2: yeah Yeah.
1: thanks so much for
4: talking to us yeah thank
2: you thank you very much all right, we're back. I'm Nick Nisi.
4: I'm Neil Roberts. And I'm Adam Gesey. I am a software engineer at Under Armour, where I work on the Mad My Fitness and MyFitnessPal web applications.
1: Nice. Yeah, cool. Yeah.
4: I'm very familiar with that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nick's been uh, working out a lot lately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, hope MFP you... has helped to
4: you know, track things. And yeah. That's, that's... Yeah. Oh, glad cool. to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I work a lot on the Mad My Fitness side, but work a little bit with the MFP side. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Your talk this morning was sort of about functional programming, but also a little bit about music. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I am a software engineer now. Before that, I attended uh, school for music composition. And so I primarily have a music background. Not surprisingly, maybe couldn't find a stable job. <laughs> and, you know, I've got a wife and two kids. So stability was uh, nice and luckily uh, had some software engineering skills that I was able to brush up and make a full-time career. Cool, nice. So the the
5: official title of your talk was composing music with composed functions. So really talking about functional programming. Uh, do you want to give an overview of kind of what you talked about?
4: Absolutely. So I was trying to give an introduction to functional programming to people who may not have any experience with functional programming, mm-hmm. maybe familiar with JavaScript and its fundamentals, but not ne- necessarily with the functional programming paradigm.
5: Mm-hmm. So why do you hate side effects? <laughs>
4: <laughs> One of the phrases I wrote down is that side effects are not bad. Without them, nothing happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and that's not necessarily true. Side effects, nothing happens except your machine does get warmer. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, if, I think, if that's what you're going for,
1: then that's okay. <laughs> yeah, the fun thing you were talking about is like driving a speaker is a side right. effect <laughs> that is is pretty important for the, yeah. the, the demo you're going to do. Right, absolutely. Yeah. The next big thing, like... Well, I mean, we'll get into the weeds here, but like one of the things I really liked is the way that you highlighted your code as you went through it. And I haven't seen anyone else do it, but I was wondering if you could just kind of explain what you were doing to our listeners, because maybe they'll start doing it in their presentations, because uh,
4: that was neat to watch. Absolutely. So for my slides overall, I used MDX Deck, which is a really cool tool that allows you to... Write slides in MDX, which is essentially Markdown, but it also allows you to put React JSX components in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how I was able to do the interactive slides, where you you know uh, click the button and played the music. But the rest of it was written in Markdown, and specifically the highlighted code was in a plugin for MDX called Code Surfer, where you can mm-hmm. give a range, either a line range or a a token range, which is a line and then the the tokens, whether that be a word or a piece of punctuation, and specifically highlight. And it automatically does all of the highlighting and the zooming, which allowed me to have larger chunks of code than you would typically be able to do in, in a single slide.
1: Yeah, really like where in things like functional programming, you end up in situations where people might have a hard time following those... Uh, inputs and outputs and you know like what gets called and when and, and having that automatic the automatic animation and highlighting was really cool. So it's neither that's a tool, it's neither it does that kind of automatically for you.
4: Yeah, yeah it was very easy to use. I would highly recommend if you need to use code highlighting in a talk. I would mm-hmm. highly recommend MDX stack and specifically code surfer.
5: Cool. Very cool. Yeah so your talk you kinda one really neat thing I thought from it was you were going over some functional concepts and You know, trying to make your talk as accessible to a wide array of audience members as possible by kind of covering some of those. But you also, like, paired it with music. And so that really helped to stick with uh, some of the the concepts that you were going over. So things like side effects, like playing audio from a speaker being Mm -hmm. a side effect. That is memorable, I think. And so, yeah,
4: good job on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was really, with some of the earlier concepts, like immutability, I couldn't think of a good way to add a musical slide in there, um, which is why I try kind of front loaded all of the jokes and (laughs) back-loaded all of the the music. I was trying to keep it fresh and not keep it boring at the beginning, but I couldn't find a way to really fit in those musical examples, which is why I put all the silly memes and stuff. I even like the
1: idea of like immutability as, as notes where you don't necessarily want to alter the original one when you produce a new one. It's easy to show people, like, hey, if you mess with the original one, you now have new noise when you try to play the original clip. Right, yeah. You kind of really advocated the idea of functional programming being beneficial because it allows you to really break problems down into smaller parts. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk more about kind of your, your take on that and why you think it's important to
5: do that sort of approach. Yeah,
4: absolutely. I do think breaking down problems into their smaller parts really do kind of help with the reasonability when you need to jump into a code base. Mm-hmm. The code base that I work on, we have a, a Redux state and in our components, we use selectors to break down the state to get a certain calculated value from the state. And so that's just one tiny piece of work where we have our overall state object and we want to drive one piece from it. And that could be a very small thing, but you can put together different functions like get an attribute if it exists, if it doesn't exist, give a default value or not. And so I, I find by breaking down a problem, it just helps helps with the reasonability, especially when you're coming into a code base not really knowing what you're looking for. Mm-hmm.
1: You used a functional programming library that had quite a number of functions that I don't think that I really have seen before, mm-hmm. at least not by name. And I know that in your talk, you didn't necessarily want to dive super deep, but here you are in a podcast where <laughs> we like to dive super deep on stuff. I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the functional patterns that uh,
4: most people might not be familiar with that you think are worth mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I used the functional utility library, Ramda, has a lot of useful utility functions and one of the cool things about Rambda is that it's auto-curried, so each function can take multiple parameters, but you can also take them one at a time. Mm. Uh, so that's useful for array map, for example. It's useful because you can pass in the function, and then you have an array mapper, and then you can pass in the array afterwards. Uh, it's also useful mm. for an add function. It takes two parameters, but you can add just one function, or you can add two immediately. So I use that for the accumulator for calculating the, the total length of time.
5: Cool. I'm curious uh, if you think that newer like, syntactic trigger that's been added to JavaScript in recent years has helped make functional programming more approachable in the language?
4: I would think so. I think the arrow function really has made the smaller functions easier to write mm-hmm. and there are some upcoming features that are currently in the TC39 spec that I think are really going to make it even easier. Are you I, about pipeline? I specifically uh, the, the two that I, <laughs> that I mentioned because I'm very excited for them. Yeah. There's the the pipeline operator I think is going to really help with functional programming and then also the native partial application where you oh, can yeah. use a question mark both of those combined, I think, are going to really make functional programming natively much easier. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you talk about more about that partial with the question mark in it? I don't think that I'd seen that before.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So if I understand it correctly, and I, I think I do. <laughs> so let's say you have an add function that takes two numbers, just a regular add function. A plus B equal, uh, you know, you pass an A plus B mm-hmm. and it, it it gives you the sum. You can pass it one comma question mark. So increment can be equal to add one comma question mark. Mm-hmm. Okay. So even though you don't write either a traditional function or an arrow function, the increment will be a function with, it'll be add just partially applied with the one.
5: So it'll return a function that, that argument will replace the question mark. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And
4: you can have multiple question marks. So if you'd like to partially apply more than one, uh-huh. You can have multiple question marks, and then the new function will take those from left to right, okay, yeah,
5: very cool. I hadn't seen that that,
4: <laughs> that does sound pretty interesting yeah <laughs> it's 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 cool, and it's sage one, and I don't follow t c thirty nine close enough to know how far away that is, but I know there's But four, four stages. stages. So I wouldn't expect it anytime soon, but you can play around with it. There's a a Babel plugin for for using it. Well, we can all go thumbs up that proposal as far as things go.
1: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we we kind of talked about it a few times in in previous episodes, but following some of those proposals early on and adding our comments and and how we think it might be, how it might play out is actually really meaningful for them. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited to kind of go look at it and, and see what they planned.
5: Yeah, and then I'm like,
1: I think in my head, like, I wonder how that works with TypeScript. Like, <laughs> is that, that should be something that's possible for them to give it a new function that has those kind of omitted from them. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was neat to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I got, I learned some new stuff about functional programming. Yeah. I feel like we use a, we use functional programming pretty heavily, but I feel like in some circumstances we've kind of not looked at what else there is out there, especially, you know, thinking some of this might even become more standardized in the future. I'm kind of curious to see what else I might want to use that I'm not, us- not using
5: right now. Before we wrap up, talk a little bit about the music side of this, because that's the other half of your talk, is, is really pairing that the functional part with the audio part. Right, right?
4: absolutely. So I really wanted to get back into music. That's what I studied, and I felt like I didn't have a lot of spare time to do music because uh, it is a fast-moving industry, so I like you know, kind of keeping up with industry, You know, playing with the new tools. And so I thought, you know, maybe I can play with the new tools with music, so I can kind of kill kill two birds with one stone. So I started thinking about how I would write music using code, and I really thought a lot about code almost as music notation, and I always thought that current music notation is really designed to convey to the players what to play in that sense, is almost like very imperative code. It doesn't really convey what the composer wants to say so much as what the musicians need to play. So it's, it's very imperative code. But with writing code, you can really write declaratively what you want. Like, here is my melody. And then here, I want to have this same melody, but transposed up an octave, a major third. Mm-hmm. And it becomes immediately obvious that it's the same it's the same melody because it's the same melody just mapped. Whereas that's not nearly as obvious when you're looking at music notation. There's so much other noise that you're looking at. Now you have these sharps or where there weren't sharps before. So I really liked that aspect of writing music through code rather than writing it through music notation because it really allows for a much more declarative approach. Mm-hmm. It also made me really wish that a lot of the great composers and musicians had source control. (laughs) uh, So many like Beethoven is a great composer and you know we're just like scouring his notebooks to see like a glimpse of his mind just if we could see like Clean commit messages. Like yeah, that, that just would be awesome. If any art form, like if it could have. Yeah. Did like, he take this version control? It? Yeah. Did <laughs> he
1: ship this up an octave? Yeah. yeah. Well, how did he decide to get from here to here? Yeah, that's super interesting.
5: It makes me terrified of what could be gleaned from my <laughs> <laughs> your commit logs. Yeah. Look at Nick's dot files. He-
1: <laughs> He's a madman. <laughs> oh, it's really fun. I think. Uh, yeah, I think you illustrated that really well in your talk as well.
5: Yeah, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Yeah, thank you all for having me. All right, we're back, I'm Nick
0: Nisi. And I'm Anthony Ciccarello. And I'm Luke Harrington. I'm a senior JavaScript engineer at a digital agency called 4Kitchens. We make big websites, and some of my work with those websites are what inspired my talk.
5: Very cool, so the the name of your talk is Components as Data Across Platform GraphQL-Powered Component
0: API. Uh, Do you want to maybe summarize that? (laughs) Yeah, it's quite a mouthful. I just threw a bunch of buzzwords in there to get people (laughs) to come to my talk. Yeah, so components as data is kind of, it's a way of building an API. You can think of it as sending UI as JSON down the wire to a consumer. And that might sound confusing, but if you think of it like there's a JSON with a component field and it has for example, hero as the value. Mm -hmm. And then there might be a data field that has all of the hero components props. So when the consumer gets that data, they just plug that component field into their component library and can render the hero image. And you could build apps this way and you could build a lot of cool stuff that way.
5: Yeah, so that's kind of the key point is that component part of the the JSON, right? Telling it what, what type of component it actually will be. And then that allows you to separated out. I think you gave an example with like a streaming UI, so having to build that for multiple devices, like an Apple TV and a, a phone and a, and a website. And so being able to say like, this is what it should be, a hero in this mm-hmm. case. And then for whichever team is implementing that, they can implement what they need a hero to look like for everything. And it has all of the data there.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It basically absorbs a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. from front-end teams into the back end, which gives some pretty interesting features to an API that you could build. And it also makes your front end team's job much different, much more different, but it also makes the front ends simpler in a way because they're only really worried about rendering and reporting analytics and yeah. those other kinds of things.
5: Yeah, definitely. So they the front end will basically have all of the data that it needs for every component, and it's just about building that component and and Doing the presentation part of it. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I really liked the way that your talk flowed with how you how you described that and you used a line to represent the decoupling. Yeah. Kind of jump between a few different like you could decouple here and only, you know, have a database as the back end basically. And then every client has to reproduce everything. Mm-hmm. Then you kinda of move that line around. And that was very helpful to to understand the concept that you're trying to to get across in the talk. Yeah.
0: The decouple line was kind of my way of trying to get people to think about where you can decouple in Mm -hmm. your architecture. We often talk about what format things should be in or what architecture we're going to use, but I don't think most people think to decouple farther away from their database and include more things like A-B testing and feature flagging. But I also wanted to kind of say that this isn't something that's necessarily new. I actually have talked to a bunch of people at this conference that are doing this very thing. So I just, I think it's pretty interesting to see new patterns emerge and see people using them when we've never talked and we kind of just, this idea emerged out of our requirements for the business and for what we were trying to build.
6: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I was actually curious to listening to your talk. It's definitely a little bit different of the approach than probably the standard approach. And, and so I was curious what parts of your project and your constraints led to you guys taking that approach. Mm, yeah.
0: The main thing we were trying to solve was an issue with repetition across platforms. Our client NBC has a lot of different platforms there. They have an Android app, iOS app, web, but then they also have Vizio and Xbox and Fire TV and And it's just, it's so many platforms, I couldn't even name them all (laughs) off the top of my head. And so a lot of these platforms were having to re-implement the same queries, for one, to go get the data. But then they were also re-implementing other API calls to third-party services. They were re-implementing the denormalization of that data. Then finally, the business logic And then it also turned out that they were re implementing a lot of similar A B tests and feature flags. Mm -hmm. And so there was all of this repetition happening, and there would emerge these inconsistencies across the platforms design inconsistencies, inconsistencies in the features or the business logic for the users, centralizing that using this components as data approach basically allowed us to almost like dry out and don't repeat yourself kind of the things that all of these different consumers were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ultimately it was driven by us needing personalization and feature flagging. And then also performance was a factor Mm. as well. So that was kind of the constraints that led us down that path and sending components down the wire ultimately, kind of made the most sense when we were really close to doing that anyways.
6: And then were you able to map those components both in web applications and also native applications?
0: Mm -hmm. Each of these platforms have their own intricacies about how they parse data and how they render. But that's kind of their concern. And so the separation of concerns is really rendering. We have the contract of what the component library is, And that's essentially the API contract is the component library itself and the different parent and child relationships between those components. And as long as a front-end team respects that contract and builds to that schema, the GraphQL schema, they are going to be able to render things. Yeah.
5: Very nice. Do you think that the main, well, one of the main drivers really is in the case of your client, they have so many different platforms? Like if it was something simpler, where it was just like web, iOS and Android, for example, would something like React Native
0: be a competing solution to this problem? I'm just trying to frame it as a... Yeah, that's a really great question. I think so. Because of the amount of clients that we have and that Mm -hmm. we're serving, that definitely plays a fact. But also, I think that simplifying those front-ends depending on the type of app you're building with this pattern could be a good call. I kind of talk about it in my talk. This pattern isn't really for everyone. It I think there's a lot of use cases that you shouldn't use it. And
5: Did you give an example
0: of one maybe? Yeah, I think like a very transactional app with a lot of back and forth between client and server where the UI is changing over time or maybe complex data entry kinds of UI's mm-hmm. Just don't seem like a good fit. Mm-hmm. But I do think that heavy content sites are a good fit. Obviously, like media sites. I think about companies like even Twitch, they have these just rows of shelves of content. Like I want to, here's some recommended streams that you can go watch. Mm-hmm. That kind of display of content is across a lot of different industries, not just media. So I do think it's a good fit for, for those, kinds of, those kinds of applications.
6: Yeah, definitely. So then when you are building a front end for one of these, I was wondering, you have all these components and you, and you have, in your talk, you describe a dictionary mapping those component names to components. How does that all work together with bundling and compiling those into something that you actually ship to the browser?
0: It's a great question. I, To be clear, I'm not on the front end team. So the details there will be a little bit fuzzy, but I think I could speak to it a bit. I'm not sure exactly how things are implemented, but I don't see why you couldn't code split in this pattern. In the case of React, in this model, you would just have to be suspending on loading a component still. So when you go and you look up the component in the dictionary and render that, you would have to just suspend on that component. And so in that way, you could still have your dictionaries there, but then you would be suspending on that but the fact that you have to have the component in the dictionary makes me think that maybe you don't you would have to import it earlier than that so well, you that's can, you can... might be able to lazy load the dictionaries or something like mm-hmm. that yeah, yeah so it's you a good have, question
6: you could have a map of different components and especially if some of them are used together like lists and list elements and those types of things then you could have a map to like Almost like you're taking your components and making them libraries that you then pull in.
0: Yeah, you could have a map of dynamic imports, I think, and mm-hmm. that would work. Yeah, that's I never thought to do it that way. Great question.
5: It seems like an interesting solution, and I definitely like the simplification of the front-end mm-hmm. code there, because it it definitely will, you know, as somebody who would go in and, and implement that, like on the front-end, I just have to really worry about the component. And you, you kind of defined a component as being a render like basically something that renders props plus state. Mm -hmm. And so the props could be the things that are passed in from the the server Mm -hmm. with that that JSON structure. And then the state could be anything like local preferences that might be changed, for example, in a streaming app, maybe if I'm filtering in some way.
0: Mm -hmm. And
5: then taking that and rendering the component based on on that. I like that simplification, but you said that there could be problems if if it had to be more dynamic than that?
0: Yeah, I think for heavily transactional applications with a lot of back and forth that could your component library and the the amount of like lazy loading that you're having to do mm-hmm. and kind of the morphing of the UI over time could lead to interesting implementations of this and it's perhaps that I'm just not familiar with it the UI for NBC is is the pretty standard like hero with a slideshow with a bunch of shelves of tiles below it. And that's a really simple UI once you think about it. The business logic that goes into each of those shelves is quite complex, but the UI itself is pretty simple. And so I do think it lends itself a little bit more to this, but there isn't a, some kind of hard limitation on this. It's mm-hmm. more of just a discretion that I would advise into when this pattern might be a good idea and when it might not be a good idea. I would want to think very long and hard before I use this in, you know, a really heavily transactional application or something. Sure. And the use cases that you have, would you ever have, so so like you have that, the
5: components as data coming across, but then would those components maybe ever request like updated data? Is that something that, a pattern that you, you've also utilized?
0: Yeah. We, have a page query, okay. and it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that you can't always just send the entire page. Yeah. That's a lot of JSON for one, and yes, we gzip it and all that, but we're talking about a lot of JSON at that point, and there's at times even some duplication of data, right? So one thing that we've explored is lazy loading. The solution we came up with there was just introducing lazy components, hmm. right? So We send down the wire maybe like four shelves, and then after that we send down in that section a lazy shelf, right? And inside of that lazy shelf, it doesn't have any data, but it does have information about how to request the lazy shelf. And so we say, hey, use this query that you have in your app and use these GraphQL variables and make this request when you need to render this lazy shelf. And what happens is they, you know, maybe it's based on scrolling. So they scroll and they hit this lazy shelf that fires off a request to go back and in the response comes back a shelf. And so once the response comes back, all you have to do is swap the component and say, lazy shelf, when you get the data back, render a shelf. Mm -hmm. We've used that in many places on NBC.com and it's been a, a good pattern. We even use it for paginating Tiles within a shelf because there could be you know hundreds of clips in a given shelf.
6: Thanks. That sounds like a great way to handle things that are below the fold or, or out of view, and, yeah. and that way you can just send the the initial view that you need, and then be able to load all those things afterward. Yep. Overall, I, I love the the concept of of taking a hard look at where that boundary of coupling is, and thinking about if we have a lot of logic that's being duplicated across systems, how can we share some of that stuff? And I feel like it's easy to get stuck into a rut of here's where we're going to do it. Cause that's where everyone else does it. But mm-hmm. I love how you guys took a look at, at your use case and, and came up with a great alternate solution that helped solve some of your problems. Yeah.
0: Thanks. I appreciate that. It was kind of just emerged as a natural solution and, As we were building it out, we almost didn't even realize that it was happening. And then finally, we embraced it and realized, this is a great idea. We need to double down on this. And it's worked for us. We just launched a redesign for NBC. So now there's basically one app that powers all of NBC's brands. So you can go and you can watch something off of Bravo or E or CNBC or NBC all from one app. And that's all powered. All of the screens across all the platforms are powered by this pattern.
5: Wow, very cool yeah that's an awesome awesome to see that in action and, and to know next time i use that the, you know the, that there's this pattern being used yeah you could <laughs> even go check out the api well thank you so much for sharing your, your perspective with us and giving us something to think about next time we have to figure out where to put that line of decoupling
0: yeah i just wanted to thank the team that i worked with there's a lot of people and a lot of hard work that went into this I wasn't the only person that worked on this project or came up with this idea and allowing Four Kitchens and NBC for letting me share because it was fun it's fun to be here. Very cool thanks so much. Yeah thanks for having me.